Hi, everyone. Welcome to Being Patient Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. Today, we're going to talk about caregiving, not only from the caregiver's perspective, but from a physician's perspective. Um, joining me is Dr. Arthur Kleinman. He is the author of a book called The Soul of Care. Um, and articulately put, it's the moral education of a husband and a doctor. Um, Dr. Kleinman's late wife, Joan, was um, uh, um, diagnosed with a rare type of early onset Alzheimer's. And he writes about caregiving for Joan from um, both the perspective of a caregiver and as a physician. Dr. Kleiman, thanks so much for joining us and welcome. My pleasure. Glad to be here. I should also say you are a professor um, of psychiatry and also um, of medical anthropology at Harvard Med School. Um, completely um, qualified to speak from a physician's point of view, um, but I love that you're, you've personalized um, caregiving in this from both perspectives. Can you tell us first um, why that was so important from your own experience to, to really write about your own personal experience with Joan? Well, the reason I wanted to write about it was that the personal experience of being a family carer altered uh, in a major way, my understanding of what caregiving was about, which came as a, a shock to me because I had spent uh, five decades of my life studying care and uh, as in research and doing care as a practicing uh, psychiatrist. And uh, so it was a surprise to me that um, all the things I learned by just simply being a family carer. It was as if a veil of ignorance was taken off my eyes. And I think, I think the reason for that is that um, physicians and nurses structure the caregiving experience in terms of their relationship to patients and families. What they leave out is all the time that families are taking care of somebody in which the world of the patient and the family are radically different than the world in a clinic or in a hospital. And that family setting, not just family setting, but broadly friendship setting as well, is, is just so very different. And um, it's not just that it's a home with all the things we associate with the home, but it has with it all the relationships that are what defines our life, really. Um, our love relationships to our spouses, parents, children, our friendship relationships to neighbors, community members, etc., and all the other relationships we have that define what you do in your life. Going to uh, the neighborhood stores, the bank, the restaurants, and the like. That's the way we live our lives. Well, when someone has Alzheimer's disease or another kind of dementia, that changes all those things, not just for the person who's affected, but for the family care is also. Is, is you, in your opinion, I mean, I know within our my family's own experience um, with my mom's care team, um, it's really, we find um, the social worker who we need to talk to the most. And 
That's primarily because we're talking about how interpersonal relationships change. So how we need to educate ourselves about a different type of conversation, a different language to use um, when talking to my mom um, in order to not make her feel badly, uh, you know, not talking over her, things like that. Are you, are you talking about um, practical things as well, like that example where we really need to change the way that we relate to our loved ones? I'm talking about the most practical things on earth, like bathing someone, uh, feeding them, helping them to walk around. This is what caregiving in the context of frail elderly or elderly with dementia is about. Uh, also, I mean, the other part about this is that I think you're absolutely right about both social workers, extremely important. Important in terms of negotiating health insurance systems and the healthcare system generally, but also with very practical advice about how to do things. However, in my particular case, the most important person for me, was not a uh, social worker, but a home health aide. So in the United States, we don't have the exact numbers, but there's somewhere between two and four million home health aides in America. Uh, these could be as formally trained as a nurse, nursing assistant who takes additional work working with uh, a family, or someone who has no training whatsoever and simply fails the, fills the role of helping as an aide. In the Chinese setting, this is often called a baomu. A baomu is a distant relative from a rural area or another person from a poor area who comes to clean, help cook in the family, and also take care of an elderly person. So that person for me was absolutely critical. And she came out of one of the two major sources of home health aids in, in uh, Boston, which are either coming from the uh, immigrant community of Haitians or from the uh, established Irish community in which there is a tradition of family uh, uh, members who provide professional care of a home healthy type. We were yeah. enormously fortunate in this regard, let me just say, and that I had to point to your viewers to one thing that really mattered with um, care of, uh, of a, a dependent elderly person. It was a home healthy. Well, because they really truly become integrated into your family in a sense, if they're providing in-home um, care. Right. Um, so, I mean, obviously you've had a lot of medical training um, and I have a long list of credentials. Um, are you, were you at all, I mean, it sounds like you weren't prepared for this from the physician's point of view. Um, well, I know that you- well, From the point of view of a husband. So I had been, I, I came out of a, I'm 78 years of age. Uh, this started when my wife was about 59 and I was 58. Um, and went for a decade, a little over a decade. Um, and I was totally unprepared. So as uh, I came up, I was totally unwoke, unliberated, came out of a, uh, your classical uh, American, or for that matter, East Asian uh, uh, family setting 
in which my wife practically took care of everything in our lives. And I brought them the money and did the work, but we were also collaborators in research, which made it somewhat different. But my wife was astonishing in what she did. And in the first year in which she could no longer do these things, she said to me, if I knew how competent you were in doing these things, I never would have left you off earlier on. So um, it's, uh, I was totally unprepared. Yeah. Did you have the opportunity to talk uh, when she was first diagnosed, which was, you know, in her late 50s? Did you have the opportunity dis to discuss um, with her what a later stage of this disease may look like with you caring for her? And yeah. did she have any opinions or input to add? Well, she was um, ridden with guilt that what should have been our golden years were now going to be something different and that I would have to bear the burden. But, but she, um, the first night that we, that after the diagnosis was made, um, my wife had, was a wonderful, she was a sort of an Audrey Hepburn look-alike with a fantastic personality, but with steel in her, she was very strong. And she said in a, in a unemotional, very direct way, the following. She said, um, I will not linger with this disease. You will find a way of helping me end it so that I do not lose uh, respect or dignity. And wow. of course, I was not about to help her end her life at any point. I just couldn't, couldn't conceive of that. But right from the beginning, that was her concern, that she would lose her, her dignity. And that was, uh, she was an enormously dignified uh, person. How we then later coped with um, the various developments changed as it does with uh, dementia, as you go through the course of dementia. So early in dementia, we're really talking about mild, relatively mild cognitive changes. They're going to interfere with your ability to use the computer, uh, to continue uh, to do your work if you're an academic or an intellectual and have to read and write for your work. But they're going to free you up in other areas. You're not going to, they're not affecting your body yet. They're not, um, you're, you're everything else about you uh, emotionally, um, personally is there. Okay? Um, however, over time, that cognitive decline becomes very severe. And there and there was a time with my wife when she was a, uh, a China scholar and loved Chinese painting and was herself a good calligrapher and painter. She couldn't do that anymore. She couldn't even, because it was an unusual form of Alzheimer's that made her both blind and uh, having dementia. She could no longer see the Chinese paintings that she had collected over a lifetime that meant a great deal to her. She couldn't make sense of the radio or the television. She, her world narrowed very substantially. And with it um, narrowing, um, there also were physical limitations. Um, so increasingly, she couldn't do things like um, handle a knife and fork or a glass of water 
or dress herself or bathe herself. So I took on all those responsibilities. And for me, actually, it was a redemptive time because, as I said, I had been so unliberated and had cared for for 36 years by my wife. And for the next 10 years, I reciprocated. So I felt this was a gift exchange, a reciprocation. And I, uh, I felt quite good about the early years. that I was doing something that I should have been doing earlier, I should have done earlier. And also that there, it was within my competence. I felt I could do all these things. But then increasingly, things occurred that I felt incompetent to handle. Because Alzheimer's uh, becomes not just a, a complete cognitive disaster, but becomes a disaster, a catastrophe for personality and for emotion. And as my wife became, she was always had been the calmest of persons. As she became more intensively distraught and frustrated and angry, and her personality changed with it, I didn't feel that I had all the skills to manage this. Even though I'm a professional psychiatrist and anthropologist, an anthropologist, like a psychiatrist, deals with people. I just felt that I, I wasn't prepared. And this took, I felt, a moral shift, a shift in what I needed to focus on. And so um, it, the, it always, I'd been so in love with my wife. Uh, the relationship was, a, was the strongest you could imagine. But I had never really thought about the fact that what happens with your presence when the other person begins to sort of be distracted by the illness, lose attention, over time begin not to be the person you had been married to before. And that takes quite a leap forward in keeping yourself oriented and loving because the person who you loved and were oriented to is frankly no longer there. You're dealing with somebody, you're dealing with somebody else in this setting. And I think my wife came to recognize that at a certain point and we talk, talked about it, but even that did not um, help. I just felt over time, it became unbearable and even unendurable. And here's where I want to just say something to your viewers, that um, uh, I've, I've, had, I've been very successful in my life in just about anything you can name. I never really was defeated. But for the first time, I really had the sense that I couldn't do this. I kept going uh, because that was sort of my way of coping. Just keep going, keep doing it, keep doing it. Ritualize it, make it a habit, just keep doing it. But over time, I needed, I needed help. And it was my children who recognized this. And it was the home health aide who picked up. So she came in around four or five years into Joan's illness. And she worked five days a week, nine to five. And I worked on the weekends. And then during the week, five to nine, 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. And we really had a sense of collaborating in this care. And that gave me both respite time where I could get away and work and, and keep earning a living. 
and also feel that there was another side of beside the side that was so frustrated in the caregiving. And also she was just terrific with Joan. They developed a, like many um, situations of, uh, of patients with dementia and a home health aide was a new person who comes into their life. At first, there is strong resistance. Yes. Accepting that person. And it takes uh, weeks to months before it clicks. When it clicks, it's fantastic because then um, your, uh, your, that family member of yours who's struggling so heroically with an illness, she's got or he's got another person to relate to. And yeah. That opens up all kinds of possibilities. Well, so, and I, I love what you're saying because a lot of this is admitting that you can't do it alone. You're going to need help. Um, and, you know, but we hear a lot of from people who who they can't afford it. I mean, the, the healthcare system is one such that they've had to spend down their savings and they've had to take care of their loved one um, and they can't afford the help. Um, but I, I take what you're saying um, with like great value because I do think successful caregiving means staying yourself as a person and having your career or whatever your interests are, being able to continue those so that you could really give the best type of care to the person. And is that really what you mean? It's like yeah, you, you sure. need to allow yourself to exist as you existed as well as as a caregiver for your loved one. Yes. And, and I think that that is associated with a bunch of tough choices. There comes a time when you have to face the reality that you can no longer take care of this person at home. That happens to everyone who has a, uh, a um, family member with dementia who gets to the last stage of dementia. So for me, since it was early on, you know, early onset uh, Alzheimer's is different from um, Alzheimer's coming in later in life because early onset tends to have a quicker period of time until death and and at the very end very quickly produces paralysis and um in the very end stage almost like an end stage to cancer or heart disease and um so at that stage i found that i could no longer lift my wife uh, do all the nursing uh that was needed and i had to make the decision uh for her to enter a uh, a nursing home that was an extraordinarily difficult decision to make. And after I made it, a number of nursing homes, so I visited with my children just to get a sense, about 22, 23 nursing homes. Wow. In the Gulf area, just to get a sense of you know what was available to us. And finally, we found a great one that we went to. But a couple of the directors of nursing homes we went to said that I, they said to me, you've, you've taken care of Joan too long at home that it, had she come earlier, she would have been more adapted to and found it easier to be in the nursing home. That was interesting. I, I'd never thought about that before. I'm glad I took care of her as long as I did, but it was, a, an, again, eye-opening to me that, that um, it's important that to, to think right as you go through this, is this the best setting that you're in for someone? And let me just re reflect on another way. My, my late mother died a few years after Joan, 
and she helped me take care of Joan. She was 102. Wow. She lived on her own. Yeah, she was totally, she, she lived, when she was 102, she was advising me on who to vote for and, and who to elect for. But um, Amazing. she lived on her own independently in, uh, near Harvard Law School for, um, until she was 99. And uh, um, then she, Joan, Joan had recently died. And I thought, well, why don't you come live with me? You can't, you can't take care of yourself any longer. Come live with me. She was hesitant to do it, but she came. But after a few months, she said, you know, I don't think this is good for me because you're gone during the day. I'm away from people my own age and friends. I think I might do better in an assisted living setting. So she was still 99 at that point. And I, I was resistant to this idea because I loved my mother. I wanted to give her the best of care. But actually, when she went into assisted living, she changed entirely. And I realized that she was depressed when she was with me. And she flowered in the assisted living. So I've come to the point of view, and I make this point in The Soul of Care, my new book, that everyone has got to evaluate their loved one in terms of, is this the best place to give and receive the care. And I could understand a decision being made much earlier in the course of care than I made it, that a cognitive care unit, a nursing home, or assisted living would be a better place to be, a, more, a, a place that provided more stimulus or uh, support, and that um, could also make the transition to the very end stage of uh, Alzheimer's easier. I've come to understand that better, that all of this, that there's no one size fits all, that this is all oriented around one particular person and how they've developed, how their family is and how they mesh together. And I think that was extremely important to recognize. And I found the decision for her to go into a nursing home, the most excruciating decision I had ever made. I felt like a total, complete failure. What, 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 we're getting a lot of comments around this point because I think this is a really valuable one. Um, I think people feel guilty no matter what. And, um, you know, like, like you were saying, maybe I didn't put her in early enough or I, I really want to um, have her at home or him at home, but I can't. Um, we have a, a one woman who's just commented, I wish I could look after my mom at home, but the care system as it is wouldn't let me continue to work right. and look after her at the same time. Right. Right. So this is, this is a point a lot of people, I think yeah. most people struggle with. Yeah. My question to you is, what was the turning point for you? What made you say, I just can't do it anymore? Okay, so the book is, is extremely personal. And I give the details of this. Um, for me, the, there was a single event that produced this, uh, this, this decision as its outcome. And that event was July 4th, 2010. Um, my wife was in uh, very, very bad uh, straits at that point, but was still at home with me. And, and I, we hadn't, I thought we should, it was July 4th, I thought we should go away and that we have a house and we have a summer house in Maine 
that we hadn't visited at all that year and that she loved, had loved at least in the past. And I thought, why don't we go up there? So I, I asked her, she, she, she understood what I was asking and agreed with a big smile, even laughter. And we drove three and a half hours up to our house in Maine. We got up there and I had to open it up, get things ready, um, put hamburgers on the grill. And just as we were sitting down to eat, my wife got extremely agitated. And I could tell that this was going to be a disaster if we stayed there. So I packed everything up, calmed her down as much as I could, got into the car, and she started fiddling with the door in her side. And so I had to hold both of her hands in, in her lap as I drove with my left hand the three and a half hours back. So just picture this day, three and a half hours up, getting us ready and everything, three and a half hours back. By the time we got back, my wife was delirious. She didn't know where she was or who I was. She was screaming and yelling. And when we got into the house, she was throwing things and she fell down to the floor, just lay on the floor uh, uh, in, a, in a period of agitated delirium, just pounding the floor, et cetera. And I, I just fell to the floor myself and just sat there kind of hopeless and helpless. And then she fell asleep and I called uh, a former student of mine who uh, brought over a uh, geriatric psychiatrist who was an expert on this particular uh, uh, stage of Alzheimer's. And uh, she, by that time, Joan had gotten awakened again, was more reasonable and cogent. But after interviewing her, this uh, colleague of mine said um, to me, took me aside and said, uh, you cannot take care of her any longer. You've done uh, um, as much as you could. She requires now professional services of an intense kind. And so she went into a nursing home and in that nursing home, so delirious was she and so um, uh, agitated that I, I provided in the nursing home round the clock nursing for, um, for more than a month, maybe six weeks. And then she was able to be cared, cared for by the, by the uh, nursing assistants in the nursing home, the, the aides working in the nursing home. But that period of time, it was a terrible period of time. And when we got to uh, um, a mental health facility on the way to the nursing home, I remember feeling uh, so desperate about leaving her there that I thought about escaping with her, that is taking her away, even after they had accepted her and she'd been admitted. I thought, I just can't, I just can't leave her here. And they wouldn't let me stay, that was the other thing. And my uh, this home health aide who had joined us at that point, again, said, well, look, I'll let me stay for a couple of hours. This was about 11 o'clock at night. And I went home and just broke down entirely, called my kids, explained to them what had happened, and realized I sort of had come to the end of my abilities. 
Now, I think that if you're a highly successful person who's always won no matter what, that's as bad a time as you can ever have. And it teaches you the lesson, it didn't have to be that bad. And that's why I think that the input I had from several nursing home directors that you, you it would have been better for you and for, particularly for her, if you had gotten her here earlier, made me think that how you do that, how you make that decision is critical and you need all the assistance you can get when you make and and one thing that really i value what you're saying is the importance of being honest with yourself you know hypothetically we would all love to say to our loved ones we're going to take care of you till the very end but actually that may not be possible and you know what 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 i really value and what i'm really taking away from this is that um, ability to pause and say, I need to be honest with myself, what's realistic and what's not. Um, and the other thing that you're pointing out, which I think is so valuable too, is the need to depend on other people at times when you need help. I think a lot of people deny this. I can see it within my own family. Um, you know, um, my father is a physician as well, but his insistence he can do it but there comes a point where you just really can't do it by yourself yeah no that's a wonderful point and my two kids came to that recognition before i did and they gave me an enormous amount of support as did my mother who by the in this you know was in her 90s when she was giving me this uh, this help so i benefited from lots of support and i point this out in the book it wasn't just my family it was neighbors, friends, or some friends drop out at this point, they can't handle it. But other friends come in. Neighbors, my neighbors did a, a generally a very, very nice job of supporting us. Even the local community in which there is a, a bank, a, uh, a Whole Foods, um, there was a grocery store, etc. Um, they had had so much contact with Joan over the decades that they were they could be really supportive even when she was agitated and they normalized things they, they gave her a, a remarkable personal assistance i felt the whole well, we almost like we had a community team working on this and that was all spontaneous well obviously that reflected what kind of person she was that she had produced a support system around her that wanted really to help in every way that they could. Not everyone's going to be going to be like that. But I wanted to point out that that these other sides of things are very important. And and this makes me think of uh, the question about how how do you rearrange your life in the context of um, a serious cognitive disturbance of dementia. At, at the be looking backward at the beginning, Joan and I, for about I don't know six months to a year, um, began to sort of not go out and to isolate like, ourselves. Yeah, to isolate ourselves, and then slowly we recognized this, and we realized that there were many friends who had no problem with Joan's Alzheimer's, and we were very happy in their in, with them, and so we we started to go out again, more and more like we had when, when things were normal. 
But there came a time when, and this I go through in considerable detail in the book, when um, you've got to make decisions about what can you and can't you do. Yeah. So, um, I, I want to actually go a little bit more into that early. We're getting a question um, from a, um, an audience member who's asking, why is it always so hard to diagnose um, early onset Alzheimer's? Now, that point is important in the context of care because we hear stories of people not getting a diagnosis for years. So you're kind of living in this no man's land, which does make care quite difficult in a sense. Um, so tell us a little bit. I mean, you you mentioned, uh, Joan, a rare type of early onset. Can you tell us rare, a little bit about say, that? It's about 5% of, of uh, Alzheimer's starts in the occipital lobes of the brain where you interpret images. And so people have visual problems. Um, let me look at it this way. First of all, let's be honest, all your listeners, you and me. I'm gonna tell you this now as someone who's both a professor at Harvard University and as someone who reads the literature assiduously on dementia, okay? We don't know fully what Alzheimer's is it probably is several disorders okay secondly we do not understand the cause of alzheimer's next we have no treatment for alzheimer's okay so it's in that extraordinarily difficult situation this is almost like tuberculosis in the 19th century okay that's where we are in terms of our understanding of dementia we have very limited understanding of it. Our major hypothesis uh, relating to beta amyloid may very well be wrong in this area. And so we're literally changing at this moment our understanding of what is the, what is the biology of this problem. And in that context, it's very hard to make a diagnosis. So at first, um, with my wife, um, her first symptoms were not were not cognitive symptoms, they were visual symptoms of impaired vision. And we went to see, you know, because I spent my whole career at Harvard, this is my 43rd year um, as a professor with all kinds of contacts in medicine, we saw lots of uh, ophthalmologists, neuro-ophthalmologists, none of them could make any, any sense of this. Finally, after I would say half a year uh, or longer of um, not being sure what the problem was, a neurological colleague of mine, a neurologist, one of our great neurologists, who is known as an outstanding uh, diagnostician, looked at her most recent um, MRIs and CT scans, and then the most distant ones, and diagnosed um, uh, atrophy of her cortical, of cortical atrophy, uh, cortex was thinning. That was such an early diagnosis because the, the radiologists had missed that. So this was made by a neurologist doing a better job than the radiologists, than the neuroradiologist in reading this. They, these neurologists were my friends and colleagues they went out of their way to make this diagnosis. And still it was a very tough one, difficult one for they, them to make. 
But I want to make a, a different point because I think that what people have to realize is that neurology as a field has a problem. It's a field that takes care of the people with neurodegenerative disorders, with stroke, with dementia, but it's oriented almost entirely to diagnosis. Has relatively few treatments compared to say infectious diseases or cardiology or uh, cancer care, has relatively few treatments. And it is unprepared by and large to deal with the question which should be the main question that everyone who gets the diagnosis should be asking. What is it like to live with this disease? What should we prepare ourselves for? What is it like? Would you believe that the neurologists that I saw, some of the world's best, not a single one told me about a home health aid or about the fact that I should prepare the house for someone who's going to be both blind and having dementia or anything else having to do with the aftercare. And indeed in the care of, uh, of a neurologist specializing in this uh, disorder, Alzheimer's, uh, my wife and I got the feeling that she was simply being observed every six months without any useful uh, input. Where did the useful input come from? It came from our primary care doctors. It came from physical therapists. It came from a social worker. It came from our home health aide. It came from family members. So this is what people need to prepare themselves for. When this diagnosis is made, when this diagnosis is made, you need all the help you can possibly muster to look ahead and plan ahead. And that is not gonna be by and large forthcoming because the very field that specializes in this problem is unprepared to handle it. So um, Dr. Kleiman, I'd like to end on, um, I, I love how you've really um, uh, written about this experience as a very rewarding experience. You know, we always frame caregiving as, wow, it's it's so taxing, it's, it's in the negative limelight. But what you've said is, it was rewarding. So tell us what you meant and, and what were the rewards and what you learned from that, that as a human being, what you learned? Yeah, so I, I think reward is too economically oriented an idea. Um, this is a disorder that um, takes away your energy, um, is very expensive, uh, take, uh, draws on your finances and uh, all the strengths that you have. Nonetheless, for me, it was a redemptive experience because it was part of the exchange, the gift exchange in which my wife had given me her love, her attention, her care for 36 years. And for 10 years, I gave her everything I had. And at the end of it, I felt an enormous sense of purpose in my life and benefit. I, you know, the astonishing thing is I would never want anyone to go through this experience. But I can tell you that if you have to go through it and you work at it and you work at enduring and making this thing a reality, you're going to get something out of it. And we know this research-wise, by the way. We know that families, um, besides all the stress-related problems, often report 
that care of, um, of a family member with uh, dementia is, has an important, is an important opportunity to provide the care that your love for someone enables you to do. It is, in that sense, ultimately rewarding. And that's why that I use the term a moral education. The soul of care, the moral education of a husband and a doctor made me a different person. If you had known me beforehand, you would have said, this is a very uh, driven, uh, hardworking, extremely successful academic. And at the end, you would have dropped all those things and said, this is a loving, caring husband. So thank you so much, Dr. Arthur Kleiman, for sharing both your personal account and your perspective as a physician. I found this um, extremely um, interesting and also applicable to what my own family is going through. So I'm sure you've helped a lot of people. Um, it's articulated very well in his new book called The Soul of Care, um, available on Amazon. I got my copy from Amazon. Um, thank you so much um, for your time and for sharing um, your wisdom with us. Um, if you've missed any part of this interview, um, please go to beingpatient.com under Brain Talks, where we host talks with experts um, around um, Alzheimer's disease and dementia. So please join us and, and uh, keep abreast with what we're doing on Facebook. Dr. Kleiman, thanks so much again. Thank you. Thank you.